This is Examine Sport, a podcast of the sports ethicist. I am your host, Sean Klein. Each episode of Examine Sport focuses on a paper in the philosophy of sport literature. We look at classic discipline-defining articles, exciting newly published works, and dig deep for important but not as well-known papers. You can subscribe, comment, and find an archive of all shows, along with links and related information at sportsethicist.com. In this episode of Examine Sport, I look at Jane English's Sex Equality in Sports, published in Philosophy and Public Affairs in 1978. In this classic and influential paper, English examines what equal opportunity for women in sports mean and what it implies. Now, it is often cited as one of the earliest, if not the first, philosophical examination of these issues as they apply to women in sport. English first looks at three major views of what equal opportunity means generally, and then applies each of these to sport. Finding the traditional views insufficient for the issue of sex equality in sport, she explores several methods of achieving fair treatment and closes with suggestions on how to achieve this. The first conception of equal opportunity is non-discrimination. This is a kind of formal equality where differentiation is based solely on those characteristics relevant for the activity. So, for example, to get a license to drive a car, the sole determination is on one's basic driving ability and capacity. Other characteristics, race, sex, wealth, height, whatever, ought to be ignored. Using these characteristics would be unfairly discriminatory. Now, for many, this formal notion of equality is the ideal of justice and fairness. But when applied to sex and sport, we seem to run into some problems. The English says, quote, if our sports were made sex blind, women would have even less opportunity to participate than at present. So basing this on the claim that there are actual physiological differences on average between the sexes, women wouldn't typically be able to qualify for participation at the highest levels of sport where such differences are relevant to performance. And this would leave women without the opportunity to compete at those highest levels with all that comes with that, the fame, the fortune, the income, and so on. Now, the second conception of equal opportunity is the equal chances or equal probabilities view. On this view, there is equal opportunity if each participant is equally likely to achieve the goals or benefits of the activity. So if Lily and Daisy have the equal opportunity to be the CEO of a Fortune 500 company, then both should have equal chances of being the CEO on this view. But this seems wrong. Lily is good with financial figures, is good at talking with investors, and has many leadership qualities. Daisy, on the other hand, doesn't really understand markets, is awkward talking with others, and prefers working with computers rather than with people. So Lily should have a much better probability or chance than Daisy, and it would be foolish and unjust for Daisy and Lily to have equal chances at that job. However, English argues that at least when it comes to sport, this equal probabilities view might have some weight. To understand her argument, we have to look at what she calls basic benefits. English says there are these basic benefits, quote, to which it seems everyone has an equal right, 
health, the self-respect to be gained by doing one's best, the cooperation to be learned from working with teammates, and the incentive gained from having opponents, the character of learning to be a good loser and a good winner, the chance to improve one's skills and learn to accept criticism, and just plain fun, end quote. So English doesn't give us an argument for this category of goods, why they are basic benefits, uh, why these are the basic benefits that we get, and, and why we all seem to have a right to them. But if we take those as a given, English ar English's argument seems to be that first, we each have a right to the health, self-respect, and fun one gets from participating in sport. Then the achievement or value of these goods, these basic benefits, doesn't really depend on the level or skill of ability, right? To get the health uh, and, and fun that comes from participating in sport, it's not really about at the level or skill level or ability that you're competing at, it's just about participation. And so if those two things are true, then it would be seemingly unjust to deny equal chances to participate. So if the, her view about basic benefits is correct here, uh, then she's right to conclude that uh, sports should, at least the basic benefits part of sports, should be governed by this ideal of equal opportunity as equal chances. The third account of equal opportunity is based on what she calls uh, proportional attainment for social groups. Here we get equal opportunity if the percentage of those participating or achieving in a given domain are roughly equal to the percentage of the social group in the general population. So on this view, an Asian American has equal opportunity for being a doctor if the percentage of Asian Americans that are doctors is roughly the percentage of Asian Americans in the general population. Now, English raises some concerns about this view of equal opportunity. And her main point against this view is that it averages the attainments of the benefits across the social group, and so it seems to treat individuals as mere members of a group where the benefits of some cancel out the suffering of others. And it would be unfair, she says, to apply this view to the basic benefits of sport. Each person ought to have the chance to achieve these basic benefits, not just an average across the social group. However, the fame and fortune that comes from elite athletic excellence are not basic benefits. Basic benefits are attainable by everyone, and everyone, according to English, has a right to these benefits. Skill, ability are, are really secondary. What matters is that everyone can participate at a level at which they can enjoy these basic benefits. But there are benefits in elite sport like fame, fortune, publicity, the prize money, and so on that really cannot be attained by everyone and that no one has a right to as such. These scarce benefits, as she calls them, are more directly tied to skill and ability, and skill and ability are not equally or proportionally distributed in populations. So English argues that, unlike the basic benefits of sport, the scarce benefits should be governed by this proportional view of equal opportunity. Now, her argument rests on the idea that each person has a right to self-respect, and since, quote, members of disadvantaged groups identify strongly with each other's successes and failures, end quote, their respect is at least partially tied to the perception of success and failure by those in one social group. When they succeed, that can impact your self-respect in a positive way. If there's failure, uh, that uh, can impact your self-respect in a negative way.
So, quote, if women as a group, do not attain roughly equal fame and fortune in sports, it leads both men and women to think of women as naturally inferior, end quote. And this leads, argues English, to an undermining or damage to the self-respect of women. And so English concludes that since women are roughly half the population, they are entitled, on the basis of the right of self-respect, to half the scarce benefits of sport. Now, it's important to note that English is not arguing that any individual athlete has a right to any particular scarce benefit. That is, that we, uh, that Serena Williams has some right to media coverage uh, su- such that it ought to be equal to that that's covered by Roger Federer, for example. Her conclusion, rather, English's conclusion, is that the way the scarce benefits are distributed has to be such that women as a total, as a group, get half of the scarce benefits. So, continuing the example, uh, on this view, women's and men's tennis should be covered equally by the media, and the prize money should be equal. So, the individual athletes don't have any particular right to those scarce benefits, but the social groups ought to have those benefits distributed to the groups uh, in some way that is proportional. Now, the wrinkle with this, as English notes, is that men, quote, men and women are physiologically different in ways relevant to performance in sport, end quote. So how do we set up a system to distribute the scarce benefits proportionally when the skills relevant to these benefits are not themselves distributed proportionally? So English explores a few ways to try to achieve this. Now, the first is the idea of, in the most common approach in our culture, uh, to form competition groups that are segregated by sex. Right? This method is also used for age and for, for, for weight groupings. Wrestlers compete at their weight class, for example. We group many competitions by ages, particularly in recreational leagues. So you might have a U8 for soccer for eight-year-olds and, un- and younger. All right, and now key to this model is that one can go up in class. An eight-year-old can compete at a higher age team, say with nine and 10 year olds, but that nine year old can't go down to the to the under eights. A wrestler in the 125 pound class can go up and compete against the 143 pound weight class, but the 143 pound wrestler cannot go down to the 125 class. Similarly, qualifying women can often compete in men's groups, but men cannot compete in the women's group. And much like where weight is not relevant to performance in the sport, weight classes are not used. Where sex is not relevant, then the sport should be integrated. Now, English considers an objection to this view. It seems to discriminate against those in the competition groups who cannot move to the other competition group. So the nine-year-old who only has just started to play soccer and so would be better suited to compete with the under-eights, but is not allowed to. Right? Or the boy who cannot make the boys' team but could make the girls' team is left without an opportunity to compete. This boy, says English, quote, is being penalized for the average characteristic of a major so- social group to which he belongs rather than being treated on the basis of his individual characteristics. Nevertheless, English argues that maintaining sex segregation in the relevant sports is justified because integration would injure the self-respect of women as a social group. The boy not able to make the boys' team does not endanger the self-respect of other boys. 
But English claims, if there isn't a girls team that can have its share of success and attainment of the scarce benefits of sport, then the self-respect of the girls and women in general is damaged. It is this concern about self-respect that she argues justifies sex segregation that is weighted towards giving women more opportunity. Now, a second method uh, to provide greater opportunity is to group competitions by ability. Since the discrimination into these groups is based on relevant abilities for the sport, this strikes many as more fair than grouping by sex directly. However, as English notes, segregation by sex or age is often meant as a proxy or shorthand to more easily create uh, ability groups. Now, an important virtue of ability grouping, according to English, is that competing with those closest to one's ability often provides the most incentive and satisfaction in competition. And ability groupings provide everyone, no matter their ability, some place to participate and access to the goods of the sport. Now, one of the main concerns, though, that English raises about this is that grouping by abilities can lead to disrespect for those competing in the lower ability groups. All right, so that there would be a perception of sort of the A group, the B group, the C group, and that if you're not in the A group, there's going to be some disrespect for those in the lower groups. Now, as the main point of her discussion is to protect and foster the self-respect of women, this method would seem potentially to backfire. Now, the last approach that English focuses on is the creation and encouragement of new sports that take advantage of women's natural physiological advantages. While acknowledging that women have, once they were free to compete, made great strides in narrowing the ability gap in many sports, English also acknowledges that biology may limit those efforts. Thus, there is a need to create and encourage sports that focus on physiological skills in which women have the natural advantage. She says we should, quote, develop a variety of sports in which a, a variety of physical types can expect to excel. There is, she says, much pride in seeing the best women golfers compete, but at the same time, this is, quote, tempered by the knowledge that they are, quote, only the best women, end quote. And further, quote, the very need for a protected competition class suggests inferiority, end quote. By creating a set of sports where women have the natural physical advantage over men, the best competitors in those sports would be women. Just sort of without any kind of protected status or other uh, mechanisms. Thus, the worries about tempering pride and signals of implicit inferiority are avoided. And so where this is possible, English argues, it is preferable to the method of sex segregation. Now, English's paper is important because it is one of the first of its kind, the first to really tackle the philosophical issues raised by the equal to opportunity for women in sport. And many subsequent papers have taken up these arguments sometimes criticizing the particulars of English's arguments. And so future episodes will take a look at some of those papers and those arguments. Thank you for listening to Examine Sport. You can subscribe, comment, and find an archive of all shows, along with links and related information at sportsethicist.com. Please also consider rating the show at Apple Podcasts, liking it on YouTube, and sharing on Facebook, Twitter, and elsewhere. You can email the show, sportsethicist at gmail.com.